All right, party people, we are back for another episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. What, what? In today's episode, we're going to be talking a lot with the RD in the house because we're talking about nutrition. What? Whoa, look out. What? First time ever <laughs> on this podcast. But seriously, do you want to like more properly ep- introduce the episode since you're the lead lady in this play? Oh, Lord. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> Nikki's bowing to me. It's making me blush a little bit. Um, so I would say, you know, I really wanted to do an episode where we're talking generally about how, and and I would say this is born out of my book writing because, you know, you know that nutrition is important for gut repair, um, gut function, but you don't really understand how important it is until you just go on a major deep dive into some of the research. And um, I think I really wanted to do this episode focusing on how important overall nutrition is in terms of gut function and looking at it through that lens instead of getting so caught up in the fear of some of the IBS and SIBO diets that you can get stuck on, um, trying to celebrate nutrition as a tool for you to get better and improve instead of a tool to restrict. And that's the way to get better, which is just not something we generally see in practice. And I don't think has very much evidence around it, but what does have a lot of evidence around it is that all like micronutrients and of course, macronutrients are going to be important for getting you to the, to the goals that you want to accomplish from a gut health standpoint. Um, so God, can I, can I interrupt? Um, quick question, because I know damn well that there's going to be some people listening two minutes in yeah. and they're going to be like, no, my diet is really clean, really good. <laughs> yeah. How, how often do you find that you work with somebody and you're like, wow, they have a perfect diet. They are nailing every single macro and every single micro. How often? Never. Now there's a Do few. Do you personally nail every <laughs> macro and micro on a daily basis? No. Um, Neither there's do I. A, there's a few things that I've worked on through the years. Vitamin E being one of them when I track that's fairly low. Calcium has been low when I've been more non-dairy in the past, but now I, I eat dairy. So that's a lot better. But it's wild. I mean, it's so wild. And I think generally from a standard American diet, if, if people are coming from that, they might already be deplete in nutrition in general if you're eating a lot of processed unhealthy foods. But then maybe you're eating fairly healthy, like some sort of mix of some process, some not. Um, and you could still be <laughs> depleted nutrients. Then you go on a low FODMAP diet and start cutting out huge food groups and that leads to more depletion and it's well, just like go oh, ahead. sorry i swear i'm going to give you the reins in a second but <laughs> no, you're um, i guess i guess the point it, and then you could go to like a more clean diet and have a lot more whole unprocessed foods and it's i think that my point in sharing that you've pretty much never seen this in clinical practice and you and i personally don't nail these things on a daily basis ourselves 
My point saying this is every single person listening to this episode can benefit from the content in this episode. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you have a pretty good diet and therefore this is not relevant to you. And just know that it takes a surprising amount of effort and like conscious thought to nail each of these. So you might be surprised to find when you do a little bit of tracking that you have a couple of micronutrients or you have a macro or two that you could really work on. So so please listen to the RD is is my point. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, I think it all comes down to nutrient repletion equals good gut function. <laughs> nutrient depletion can wreak havoc on so many different aspects of gut function. And I even think about, you know, SIBO and IBS when you think about the underlying factors. So you think about motility you think about immune function, you think about the microbiome, you think about digestive capacity. All of these things are governed in large part by nutrition. Nutrition is going to affect every aspect of the four uh, categories that I just mentioned. Um, and so, and that's what you see in the research too. You see in the research, like as zinc becomes depleted, it affects gut lining function, it affects enzyme production, it affects stomach acid levels, it, it affects, again, how you repair gut tissue, like it affects everything. And you could go down the, the list with different nutri- nutrients, and you're going to have the same patterns. It's like, oh, this one might have a different effect, maybe it's more involved in motility, something like choline. Choline is more involved in production of acetylcholine, which is important for motility. Um, you know, these are micronutrients, and we've talked a lot about macros, and I think we could briefly touch on they're really important too. Just having enough overall fuel is super important. So that can be having adequate carbs, having adequate protein, having adequate calories, Um are all really important. We can kind of dive a little bit deeper to into some of the micronutrients or that the that conversation. Um, you know why they're important, uh, and again, a lot of it comes down to that they all have a special job involved with motility, digestive capacity, immune function, microbiome support, and. If you are just constantly depleted because you're scared of foods and you're restricting, you're creating such an uphill battle for yourself, um, maybe from a macro standpoint, but then that leads to micronutrient deficiencies that can take some time to improve and some due diligence to try to uh, course correct on. Um, But I think that that's what I see generally in, in working with people is that it's just this spiral that people go down where maybe they start to cut out foods and that might lead to some slight under eating and maybe some nutrients not being where they need to be and then their symptoms get a little bit worse and then they're pulling out more foods and then they're more nutrient uh, depleted and it's just this whole cycle and I think it digs your it digs you into a hole and I talk when I meet with new potential clients that's what I always say I'll say some of the some of the interventions that you've done unfortunately have dug yourself into a bigger hole and it's going to take a little bit of time 
to work yourself out of that hole, I think you can. I see all the time people can work on nutrition and become replete and really optimize their diet. And it's super beneficial from a gut health standpoint. Um, but that's what some of these diets do, unfortunately, is that they dig you, they dig you in such a nutrient depleted state that it makes it virtually impossible to improve from a gut symptom standpoint. Yeah. Well, and I like the analogy of digging a hole and I think it's important, too, to start out and say that most of the time, you know, the day before somebody develops IBS symptoms or SIBO symptoms or candida symptoms or whatever it was, they weren't perfectly healthy that day. Yeah. And they weren't eating a perfect organic <laughs> farm-to-table diet, probably. like You know what I mean? Like, I right. think that what happens is we're living a lot of our lives already in a very large crater. Right. But it's it's a big enough crater that we don't realize we're in a crater. We just see the flat ground and we're like, oh, no, we're good. We're normal. I'm just like mm -hmm. everybody else. So we're starting at a deficit to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then the treatments that we try to do are digging our, our personal hole underneath us. Yeah. But we were already in a crater to begin with. So it's like... <laughs> you know, salt on a wound, or it's it's compounding with interest now. And mm. now, yeah, you're going to have a really hard time healing if you can't, if you don't get enough energy in the form of calories, if you don't have the literal building blocks to make stuff. I was, I was telling somebody uh, recently, I had a guy, and he was eating really, really low protein. Mm. And he wanted to work with me. And I said, honestly, I I don't think that you're at a point where my stuff is going to work for you yet. And I actually sent him back to his GI doctor to talk about like TPN and doing, you know, some more aggressive nutritional repletion because he, he basically is eating no protein. Mm. And I was using the analogy. I said, it's like you're trying to build a brick house, but you don't have any bricks. I could bring in the world's best plumber the world's best architect, the world's best electrician, foreman, bricklayer, person, whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I fly in all the best house builder people if you don't have the bricks to build the house. So right. before we start thinking about the st stress management and the sleep hygiene and the herbal medicines and, you know, the, the fancy stuff you have to have the bricks. And right now you're, you're telling me that you're not capable of getting the bricks in your diet. Therefore, to me, this is sounding like a TPN case where yeah. we need to replete you at least that much before any of the other stuff is going to have an effect. And that was like a really overt example of this. But I think that there are more subtle versions of this everywhere in this world. And mm. people just don't realize it. They don't have the bricks to make the house. And then they're confused why they don't have a house. Yeah, and and I think there's a lot of elements as to why why restrictive diets are favored. But, you know, you were saying that you're already in a bit of a crater typically when the symptoms start to erupt. Um and my theory is that at that point, how awesome would it be if there was a nutrition first nourishing mindset because I 
in my opinion, if people could just nourish better and maybe they focus on foundation, it's, it's not solely on nutrition, but they focus on the foundational pieces at that point. Um, but, but the, the restrictive diets are the loudest right now in the, the IBS and SIBO space. So it's no surprise that that's the avenue that people go down. Um, and again, I, I am not against FODMAP per se, but it's not, in my opinion, it shouldn't be used as a first line offense or first line intervention. Sorry, not first line offense. Um, it's rather, overused and abused. Yeah, it's overused and abused. And I will say too, what's so interesting doing research for my book is that you look at all these FODMAP studies and yes, people get a lot of benefit from them. But what people are doing in the FODMAP studies are way different than what people are doing in real life. Because in the FODMAP studies, people have guidance by a dietitian and they're educated and they're, they, they do a reintro phase and they, they go through all the traditional phases of FODMAP. Now, I can ask you this, how many, like what percent of your clientele is actually guided on a FODMAP zero. I I did a post recently and I said less than 5%, but that might be even a um an overestimation. Um but yeah, no no one's really getting close guidance or very very few. There's been a few clients I've had where they have said they've worked with a dietitian and that's surprising to me when I hear it. Um so the other thing is that there's no one there to help ensure that your nutrient replete when you're doing it on your own um, or that you're in the right mindset as to what that diet is for. The diet is to help manage symptoms a little bit. Um, Maybe you could argue that there could be some benefit just to kind of lower inflammation if symptoms are severe for a period of time, but it's not supposed to be a lifestyle. It's supposed to be more of an experiment. So if you're not in that headspace going in, it can be, uh, something that you can get very easily stuck on. And these aren't bad foods. That's really important too. Like onions and garlic and apple and even wheat, like these aren't intrinsically bad foods. And I think that gets miscommunicated in the SIBO world, especially, and especially the functional medicine space. Yeah, 100%. I just had a new client yesterday and she was showing me the Monash app. And uh, I was like, oh, I love that this helped you for a period of time. And I, I'd much rather hear you use the Monash app because I, I do think Monash has good education. But it was still the mentality of this is a green food and this is a red food. And I'm a little nervous around the red foods. So we were talking about reintroduction. And I said, let's just take a break from the Monash app for a period of time. And she totally agreed and was on board for that. But um, yeah, I... Oh, here she, here we go. Nikki showing me the the red and green dots from the app. Um, but yeah, it's 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 just wild to me that nutrition does get lost in the sauce. And we were talking about before we jumped on, just spitballing some ideas too around this topic. I think that the fear of symptoms because FODMAP and and um, maybe you did FODMAP and it really helps symptoms. The fear of having symptoms again keeps people stuck on it. Whereas a lot of the nutritional 
optimization piece, I do think helps symptoms. It might not be, and I think it helps the root causal problems that could be at play. So a lot of the root causal issues in IBS and SIBO are motility, digestive capacity, immune function, uh, gut imbalances. Nutrition is core to helping resolve all those issues. FODMAP isn't going to do that. Um, now, there could be some elements that help maybe with inflammation for a period of time, or but it's not going to be an a it's not, it's going to be more of a symptom management tool than something that really affects the root cause of what's going on behind these gut conditions. So again, the nutrition optimization part or nourishing properly essentially is not going to be this overnight change like FODMAP might be or what you experienced when you started FODMAP where it was like, whoa, I was really bloated and now I'm feeling a little bit better. That's awesome. I'm going to keep on this diet. And then your fear takes over. And says, whoa, I'm too scared to have symptoms again, which I totally get. I, I totally understand why people can get stuck on these diets. But just understanding that it is addressing more of a symptom side of the equation than more of a root causal side of the equation, nourishing and focusing on nutrition is going to be way more beneficial to some of the root causes at play for IBS and SIBO. Well, and this kind of dovetails from our last conversation about the truth about functional medicine, but I think another factor is this idea of feeding SIBO really terrifies people, and they fear that they're going to do permanent damage if they eat even a single FODMAP. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And it there's no evidence to support that. <laughs> we can't emphasize that enough. Um, and it's such a bummer that that's just a widespread believed statement. Um, even some of the conventional doctors say that, like, I, I think Pimentel talks a lot about starving bugs too. I think his diet's way more reasonable to me, um, than what I see in the functional space, but still there's this mentality of starving the bugs, I know like he's talked about, oh, like trying to feed them at different times. Like he he has some verbiage that I don't necessarily think is super well supported by um, some of the evidence. But yeah, I, I think that just trying to get in the mindset of my biggest priority from a diet and nutrition, from a diet standpoint is to make sure I'm nourished. If you can get into that mindset, I think that progress, long-term progress at least, is much more within reach. If you are stuck in the mindset of, I have to restrict and never eat FODMAPs again and avoid foods just because I heard they were bad mindset to, to heal the gut, you could be stuck. You could be creating some um, nutrient deficiencies over time, or you will. I've seen it time and time again. Um, and it's really, it's just so problematic. And there's only so much supplementation you can do, too. Granted, I'd rather someone try to supplement if they're on a restrictive diet to get some nutrition in if, if they really are depleted in certain nutrients, if they try to maybe supplement a little bit. But it's definitely not optimal. It's way more optimal to get it in dietarily if you can. So this idea that you can just sort of put together a few supplements and call it good, you know, wipe the slate clean, call it good that you're covering those nutrient bases 
is flawed as well. Um, and again, you could end up going too high in certain nutrients and, or again, you could, by raising one nutrient, it can deplete other nutrients. So there is a lot of synergy between the nutrients too. And not that I, I would never use supplements, uh, like nutrient related supplements. Cause I do, but I do think they should be used wisely versus sort of willy nilly. Like, Oh, I heard vitamin D is good. I'm going to take that. Or, you know, I'm, I'm low in, in this, I'm going to take a lot of this without kind of monitoring by someone that knows what they're doing. Um, there's a lot of that, I think in the health and wellness space of Ton. you, you need to take this perfect, uh, multi. And again, maybe a multi makes sense for some people, but, you know, it is a scenario where if you're taking, especially singular, like a singular nutrient in high doses, it can lead to more problems too. So trying to make shift nutrition out of supplements is not the ideal answer either. You mean not everybody needs two milligrams of methylfolate every day? What if you have MTHFR, Amy? Oh my, oh my if? gosh. Oh my gosh. Your eyes. <laughs> I was she doing the crazy, crazy eyes on purpose. Yeah, crazy blinky eyes. Um, yeah. But, but I agree with you. I think that the more we get into, A, like singling out nutrients and thinking mm-hmm. that that's going to work, I think that that's probably flawed for one. But B, um, it's a weird kind of realization in the last 10 years or so that I've had because I think the two things, ironically, that charmed me about functional medicine and what what kind of like hooked me and brought me into the profession was the fancy schmancy lab testing, which now, ironically, I'm pretty much universally against. And I think it's all horseradish. But then also the supplements. I really liked the like tinkering with the different vitamins right. and minerals and supplements. And ooh, this is so fun. But, you know, I, I think the best example I could give of this idea that food-based nutrition is best. And yes, you could try to take a vitamin or a mineral supplement, but it's probably not going to be as good. Um, The best example I could give, which I think we stated recently in an episode, is the case of a vegan client. Mm. I don't know about you, but I will be truthful and reveal. I have had, I can't think of a single (laughs) vegan client that I've been successful with clinically. And Every single one of them, we've done the standard things like, oh, you're not getting enough iron. So let's, let's talk about getting more, you know, plant based iron, or let's do an iron supplement. Okay, you're not eating B12 at all. So let's have you on a B12 supplement. You're not eating zinc at all. So let's have you on a zinc supplement or a multi that has both of those nutrients Mm. in it. And then, you know, oh, maybe, maybe we'll give you a little bit of this and that and emphasize protein. And that hodgepodge, like supplemented approach just doesn't work. I've never seen a single vegan mm-hmm. get better eating that way and taking those supplements to band-aid around the deficiencies. And I think, mm-hmm. but I've, I have heard plenty of cases where somebody switched their diet from vegan to a more omnivore-based diet or a paleo diet they reincorporate the foods that contain B12 and zinc and protein and iron and whatever. And then they feel better a couple months into doing that. And it's like, are we fooling ourselves that we think that we can just replace nutrients and bandaid around our diet preferences? Like, I, I think that that might be a 
a fallacy and we don't realize how bad of a fallacy it actually is. Yeah. And I know we we recently too talked with Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, where she talked about research with multis doesn't seem to replete levels of nutrients very well. Um, And again, I I think there's a time and place for nutrient-related supplements. Outright deficiency, I think it could be super helpful. And I I think that can be a part of replenishing, too, if there are really some big outright deficiencies that might need a little extra help to get you to a replete point that then can be maintained dietarily. So I don't want it to sound like I'm very against supplements, but I think even in those cases, I would never think of, unless there is some major deficiency in intake for some reason, to use a a, a single nutrient long-term. Usually it's more so, okay, like let's replete and try to figure out ways to get it back into your diet so that, again, you're not on a B12 supplement all the time, <laughs> you know, that you're repleting the levels and then let's maintain with nutrition. And I think that that tends to work best than trying to just, you know, hodgepodge together some supplements and call it good and hope for the best. And um, go ahead. Yeah, I I was just going to say, it's kind of like you're working around the elephant in the room instead of just getting the elephant out. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, you could put down some hay for the elephant to be comfortable. (laughs) And you can put down some newspaper to catch its poop for its poop area. Like I don't know. I've never owned an elephant, people. I like this analogy. You can work around the elephant or you could just get the elephant out of the room. Yeah. And I agree. Like, I'm not anti-supplement use in the case of outright deficiency. Like, I remember freshman year of college, um, my roommate slash teammate just like her athletic performance was just not what we thought it would be coming off of her high school rowing track record. And uh, it turned out at like the end of the first semester that she was wicked iron deficient. She was full blown anemic. Mm. And I still remember she got on like a crappy quality prescription iron pill. And within a week, she was a different athlete. I kid you not. Like, she she was actually pulling her weight in the boat for the first time in months. But it was because the poor girl was anemic and nobody knew. So I, I think the difference we're probably talking about here is that for the small part of the population that has an outright clinical deficiency, like something bad enough that conventional medicine would go, ooh, yeah, yeah. We, we care about this. Those are the people that usually the supplements are life-changing for. Right. Again, like a vegan who hasn't eaten B12-containing foods in three years. When they take B12 initially, they're going to be like, oh, this is great. But is that going to be the same as if that person just went back to eating red meat or seafood or whatever? And similarly, like, you know, right. if you if you have a hemoglobin of... 12.3 and a ferritin of 34, are you going to get that miraculous benefit from an iron supplement like my old roommate did? Probably not. Right. But if you have a ferritin of five, yeah, yeah, it'll probably feel like the lights are turned on for the first <laughs> time in a long time. But I think that a lot of the people that we work with, I would argue the vast majority, are in that 
you know, that insufficiency or like very minor deficiency kind of range. And that's not where you can expect to find really big miracles from supplements. You really got to emphasize foods. Do you think that that kind of summarized it pretty well? Yeah, 100%. And again, I think a lot of issues come to once you're compounding deficiencies on top of each other as well. Um, or insufficiencies, I should say, if you're, if you have insufficient intake across the board, you're just, we can't even really comprehend all the mechanisms as to which it'll affect gut function. Like there's just so many different things. Um, for instance, magnesium is involved in basically 300, um, reactions in the body. So if, if magnesium isn't, uh, where it needs to be, you're going to be in a world of hurt, f- not just gut wise, but overall. All hats are off. Right. right? So, it, and then again, then maybe it's not just magnesium, maybe it's iron. And these are the things that I see when I review people's nutrition too. It's like, usually I can isolate a number of micronutrients that are um, deficient. And I will say too, working on Calories is really important because that's where the micronutrition comes from. So if you are low in calories, work on that first. But even if you can get calories up, there can sometimes be important micronutrients that you need to hone in on. Um, And uh, and the one thing I will say, too, uh, that came to my mind is just I think overall nutrition, even outside the gut health space, isn't really emphasized a ton. So and it, it's unsexy, like we always talk about, like getting adequate magnesium from your diet isn't necessarily a sexy uh, web page or, or news article <laughs> to read. Um, and so it doesn't really get as much um, press or discussion. So, but that doesn't mean that it's, it, that's where the discussions should be. But unfortunately, some of the sexier things like these restrictive diets, that can sometimes give you some results right away really quickly and that can pull you into that mindset but the more you can reel in that mindset and and start to focus on additions and less on restrictions the the more progress you're going to uh, come to i have a metaphor i don't know if this will make sense it it makes sense to me so yeah. i'm going to share it um And it's tangentially related, but I was just thinking as you were talking about this, how, again, it's, it could be such a hard sell for us in our world Mm -hmm. because people just remember the stark contrast they felt when they first eliminated the FODMAPs. Right. Of like, oh my God, my symptoms were reduced 80%, 90%. And, and I think it's very easy to get into that headspace of, FODMAPs are bad, or they're feeding the SIBO, which is bad. I'm doing permanent damage. I'm causing inflammation. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the FODMAPs are inflammatory somehow. Like, it's very easy to get these things mishmashed in your head. Mm -hmm. Um, And similarly, like, when people go gluten-free and they feel better, or when people go, you know, low histamine and they feel a difference, I think that's what stands out in people's minds is that stark contrast between what they were Mm. doing before versus like that first strict phase of the elimination and how good they felt for those couple of weeks before the rest of the shit hit the fan. And I guess the, the metaphor that I wanted to share is that 
just because removing something makes you feel better, that doesn't mean that that thing was actually bad or inflammatory for you. And here's mm. the here's the metaphor. Ready? If you have a sunburn, okay, and this actually, this could be controversial. If you have a sunburn and then you put on a bra, the bra will cause you pain, right? And say you're walking around all day with that bra on and you have a hella sunburn and you're in pain all day. And then you go home and you take off your bra and you're like, oh, oh the best sweet feeling. relief. That feels amazing. Was the problem actually the bra? Now, again, the reason I said this is controversial is I know that some women are very anti-bra now, and that's cool. Like, you do you. But I'm saying, was the problem actually the bra? Or was the problem that that tissue, your skin, needed to be healed and that it was mm. raw and inflamed and angry? Right? So in this case, yes, you could take away the FODMAPs, and that could reduce inflammation. It could reduce histamine, actually, mm. like that's been shown. It can reduce symptoms. It can make you feel a hell of a lot better. Those have all been very well substantiated in research. Mm. But does that actually mean that FODMAPs are bad or inflammatory? No. It means that your tissue state was not in a... Your tissues were not in a state that could handle that mm. thing. It doesn't mean the problem was the thing. Those are two different ideas. And I right. think that people get that confused very often. And that's right. part of what makes this really hard for us is like we're trying to untangle this and explain this to people. But we tend to remember things and we tend to make decisions from more of an emotional yeah. standpoint. And then that's what really sticks, you know? Yeah. And I, I think to your point, nutrition can help with the actual inflammation that was there to yeah. begin with. Like nutrition can help heal the tissue. And so that's the hard sell. Like you're saying for us as we're screaming, like just heal the tissue. Um, the brawl isn't the problem, but again, we're, we're small, but mighty. I think our voices are not in stature. You're tall. Well, You're small, but mighty. I'm actually quite <laughs> tall, but I get what you mean. We're few and mighty, but we're, we're, um, doing our thing. But again, I, I don't, I, I even think even in the conventional space too, like they don't really value nutrition. And then you go to the functional space and it's like, we value nutrition, but it's more from these weird therapeutic restrictive diets. So there's just, I, I don't think people really understand the gravity of the nutrition piece. And really this is just a plea to as best you can and maybe do a little bit of tracking first to look at your overall nutrition from like a carb calorie protein. And we've done episodes on a lot of these topics, but look at overview and then look at your micronutrients. Like once you feel like you're in a better place, just overall, which ones are a little bit lower? Usually for me, if something's consistently like below 90%, like a a lot of days in a row because there's going to be days where you're just a little bit lower in certain things and that's totally fine if you're averaging um assuming you eat a variety right if you eat the exact same thing every day and your numbers are the same every day that's actually a a different issue altogether that's right that's true. not the goal is that's to not eat the, the same goal. thing every day like you should have a little bit of fluctuation on a day-to-day -day basis that is not the goal so yeah i agree like getting variety in um is so critical 
um, from a from a nutrient standpoint. And that's the thing too, which we haven't really talked about. If you are eating the same thing every day, you're getting the same exact nutrient profile every day. So it's not just about eating variety for your microbiome, which I think is very important, but it's about eating variety so that you get a variety of nutrients each day. There might be a day you get a little bit more vitamin A and then another day that you get a little bit more B12 or a lot of iron from like a steak or a burger that you don't eat every day. So getting a variety of nutrition helps ensure that you're not going to develop deficiency. And that's the hard part is when you start removing these things, the risk of deficiency definitely goes up. Um, And again, I I don't really think there's tons of long-term research on FODMAP. Uh, I think there's one study maybe, but I don't think there's any long-term research around deficiency or um, comparing, you know, control groups um, with nutrients compared to people that have been on restrictive diets a long period of time. Uh, But I think if you did do it, you would definitely see some suboptimal levels of intake and deficiencies developing across the board, even outright deficiencies. Um, So... Go ahead. To, to be honest, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. um, I think, A, there probably isn't super long-term research on FODMAP because the term FODMAP was only coined right. in like 2014. Right. This is only a 10-year-old thing that right. we've been talking about, people. Um, so we're cutting edge here on the right. IBS Freedom Podcast is what I'm saying. But um, A, the term FODMAP is only 10 years old for starters. But B... Monash is extremely painfully clear. This is not a long-term thing. Yeah. And so I I think that they're probably disinclined to do that kind of research really because that's right. not the point. That's not that's not how they recommend using this tool at all. So like why you well, know it's like why would you research how a submarine does on the moon? That's yeah. not how it's meant to be used. Why would you fund that research? Well, you know it's kind of interesting and it, it bummed me out. There's a and this was a long time ago, so I don't think I'd be able to find the post. But there's a popular um, dietitian. I think she's actually in a different country. But she had posted – she did this post that was basically like saying – they're posting about this long-term study that said, you know, it's okay – or a year-long study that said it's okay, FODMAP, like there's not risk. But I didn't think it was a great study when I looked into it. It was one. It was like the first long-term study. And she was using it as evidence to be like, here, see – it's actually okay to stay on FODMAP long-term. And I was like, no, this is not okay. And people were chiming in in the comments, especially other dietitians that were like, no, I don't think that that's right. So, I mean, I, I it, it bums me out to see people's, uh, again, digging themselves into holes. And I know you get frustrated because it's just, it's a never-ending thing. <laughs> and it's always funny when I do have clients that, haven't really gone down the rabbit hole, which is super rare. And I know we've talked about this before. It's like the unicorns that they find us pretty quickly upon getting diagnosed. Maybe there's been some symptoms, but they haven't necessarily done too much yet. It's always like, wow, look at you. Like we don't necessarily have to dig this you is in. refreshing. I know. We don't have to dig you out of a hole, which again, I'm happy to help people dig themselves out of holes, but you just will get results a lot quicker if you're not having to work through optimizing your nutrition too much um, or like rebuilding the wall, essentially. Um, So yeah, I I think at its core, this episode is just a plea to 
try as best as you can to focus on nourishing and working out of this restrictive mindset that's so easy to get caught up in. Again, I've been caught up in it. I know you've been caught up in it. So we're not speaking on this topic without having some personal and clinical experience with some of this stuff. Uh, But again, I'll repeat it till the cows come home. Digestive capacity, motility, immune function, the microbiome all need optimal nutrition to function. And so if that really takes a hit because there's, because you're basically working on symptom management through diet versus like root causal approaches through diet, it's going to be really hard to progress. Yeah. And then it's, it's honestly no wonder why you feel so stuck. I I mean, oftentimes we'll see people, I, Hopefully you agree with me on this, but um, oftentimes people will come to work with one of us and they'll be like, oh, I'm so stuck. And all these providers have told me I'm an impossible, Mm. tough case. And oh my God, oh my God, I'm doomed. I'm host. And then we take a look at the case and we're like, no, it's like pretty clear why you're stuck. Yeah. It's just, it's a matter of implementing it a lot of the time, right? right? Like how do you help this person nourish themselves or how do you help them deal with their stress or their relationships or their whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's the, like the academic diagnosis kind of part of it is usually not all that hard in our Mm -hmm. line of work. Once you get the swing of it, it's more of how do you help that real life human being apply Mm -hmm. this in their real life on earth? Like how do we coach, how do we coach them? Yeah. It's more of like the health coaching stuff that gets really tricky. Yeah, I I know we've talked about this too. It's and I think by the time we have people there's so much food fear typically if they're on some of these diets that we have to work through. Um which again, I, I think is probably the biggest barrier that I see. Sometimes there's symptomatic barriers too, which is challenging as well if someone has a lot of hypersensitivity or a lot of this or that. Where in reality, diversifying the diet will help with hypersensitivity, but getting to that point can be a little tricky. So you might need to do some work to help ensure that you're nourished, but that should still be the focus. The focus should always be aimed at getting you nourished. Even if someone did a FODMAP diet, I'd still advise them to pay attention to nutrition while they're doing it. And again, if it's a short-term thing, maybe it's not that big of a deal, like two to four weeks, but, um, that would be a stepping stone so that you can nourish yourself better. The, the end goal should always be that you're nourishing yourself so that your your gut can function optimally. And if there's barriers to that, then working on those barriers so that you can reach that goal is super important. But the solution should not just be going down the restrictive rabbit hole because it seems to help mitigate symptoms in the moment. Um, but yeah, I think the coaching element becomes very important for digging people out of holes when it comes to the nutrition piece. And I think you, you can, it, there are some people that can jump on this and thrive immediately. Like they can just do chronometer and they'll see, oh, I'm low calorically. I'm going to add some, this, some of this stuff back in, I'm going to add some variety back in. And then their nutrition looks pretty great. Um, on their own. And then I think there's other people that, like I said, have some bigger barriers that might need additional help. Um, and that's more of what we do with clients. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think for some people, it's a simple awareness issue. Yes. Yes. And then for others, there's a bit more to it than that. Again, like, how do you implement this in your life? Is there like an emotional component to the dietary change that we're asking you to make? Um, But yeah, or again, an emotional component to like your health situation and like, Mm. You know, I think a lot of people are unwilling to make some of these dietary changes because they frankly don't believe it'll work. Yeah. Like they've been sold on the idea that there's a magic pill, a magic potion, a magic herb, or that there's a bad boogeyman that they have to kill. And the idea that just like cleaning up their nutrition a bit and eating some foods with zinc, like that seems like too simple of a solution. And they just don't always believe that that's going to work for them. Yeah. And I, I get that. And I, I... I think it's it's having more of a long-term focus, which is very tricky, especially when you have intense symptoms at the moment. It can can be very tricky to stay focused long-term and to wait something out. Because I can tell you right now, if you shift your nutrition today, tomorrow, you're probably not going to notice a, a huge difference. And maybe you could even notice some responses that that you're adjusting a little bit to some of the changes that you just made. So there can be transitional things that come up when you shift your diet that uh, could make things a little worse for a period of time. Um, I think it's that's short term. I don't think that that's long term at all. But you sometimes have to get over these pumps and these barriers before you're going to see results. So it is about staying real focused on long term goals. And that's tricky when you're having symptoms right here, right now. And there could be some things you do for those symptoms to make things easier. But just keeping in mind, when you do change your nutrition, you're not going to get a snap of the fingers change in uh, function right away. It takes time and just staying with it is so pivotal. Well, it's hard when you have symptoms, but it's also hard when you are a human to do that's that. Very like, that's very true. Like humans are very wired for short-term instant gratification, show me the money kind of stuff. Right, right. And, you know, it, and we have the brain lesion too. We are not yeah. speaking from some pedestal like we figured it all out. Um, I, I might have shared in previous episodes and I'm laughing at myself still. Um, I have a goal to lose a couple of pounds in the next like six months or so, I'm, I'm giving myself tons of time to do it. And I'm working out and doing some dietary things. But um, I've got maybe like, eight to 10 pounds that I think I could trim off reasonably. And I kid you not, I worked out for like a week, I worked out maybe three days in one week. And I, I felt the twinge of like, I'm gonna get on the scale. I was like, No, right, right. <laughs> no, you know, this is not how it works. But I felt that twinge. Mm-hmm. And my brain was like, Ooh, I bet it's changed already. <laughs> you slim vixen. You. Oh, my gosh. And it's just, you know, it's like, I I had to laugh at myself. And I continue to do this. And I'm, I'm, kind of casually like hopping on maybe once a week, but I'm also keeping in mind that female hormones impact fluid retention. So like, I can't even trust the numbers until I get four weeks out right? at the earliest because I have to compare apples to apples, Yeah, right? Like the weight I I took three days before my period is not going to be the same weight, you know, the day I ovulated or the day of what. So anyway, so I, and I, and I will say probably not all, dietary interventions are like this, but I would say a good rule of thumb 
if you made some pretty massive changes to your diet, I think you will most likely notice some changes at the four-week or month point. And I think you'd notice most of the changes by the three-month point. So just to keep that in mind, too, it's not like you're waiting around forever. I mean, there could still be things that might take a little bit longer to work work out, like if there is a, a, a deeper insufficiency or a deeper deficiency. But I would say most of the time, if you're kind of in inter- if you're pretty committed to some of these dietary changes, you're still going to notice them in a relatively short period of time. It's not like you have to wait a year or something to see the results per se, but you can, um, you know, especially with the macro changes, see benefits across a short period of time. The micros I think can go up fairly quickly too. Um, and it depends on how how much you intervene. So like whatever you're doing, if your first focus was on macros and then you kind of wait a couple months to intro, intro um, certain vitamins or minerals or trying to up those. So it, it can just be a little bit extended. But I, I will say like upon doing an intervention, most nutritional interventions, I think you notice some shifts by about the month point and then start to see the bigger shifts or the majority of the benefit at the three month point. That's really good to let people know too, because I think with the conversation thus far, it probably was feeling like, Oh God, I have to wait like five years. Right. This is going to be terrible and awful. And I'm just going to suffer for five years. And these people are terrible, evil people. And they're, and it, no, it's it, but there's a difference between, Oh, you're going to notice a significant change in three months versus you take a new probiotic and tomorrow you feel different. Right. You take a prokinetic or an antimicrobial or a whatever and tomorrow you feel different. And that's what people are used to. They're used to, oh, I started rifaximin on Monday and on Tuesday my bloating was gone. Right. And that's kind of what we're up against. So in that context, one month or three months can feel like an eternity, but it's really not. It is very doable. Yeah, and I, I think that the the a lot of times when you're chasing the symptoms, it again in the context of how long people that we work with have been dealing with this stuff. You know, I we see people that have been dealing with it for years and decades. Three months is a drop in the bucket. Um, you would do it, right? So, it again, I I totally get getting sucked into, oh, I can kind of feel better right now. And again, some of those things could help you reach the goal of having better nutrition if it helps with tolerance, which I think is totally, a lot of times prokinetics or some digestive aids can help a lot with tolerance um, to more foods right out the gate. Like that could be something you try, but still you're doing that (laughs) to try to address some of the root causal nutritional issues that'll help you long-term. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I certainly hope we made the case for nutrition in this episode. Uh, It's important guys, if you didn't know, but again, you know, it's, it's so bizarre. You mentioned this earlier, but I feel like in the functional medicine space, they give this ruse of like, oh, nutrition is super important to us. Food is medicine, right? But then the t- 
tone of that and the nature of the nutritional advice is just so warped in the functional space mm. and, and naturopathic and integrative, whatever you want to say. They're right. all the same at the end of the day in this regard. But it's like pretty much none of my colleagues in that regard are teaching you how to nourish yourself. And honestly, even... I'll be honest. Sometimes I hear you talk about some of the recommendations that you make to clients, and I'm thinking, "Ooh, I need to step it up." Because, <laughs> like, I'll I'll be the person who points out, "Yo, you're not getting enough protein. We could probably get more protein in your diet." Okay, that's your homework. Go get more protein. And like, I'll point out something like that. But then Amy is sitting here saying, "Okay, if you add one egg to your breakfast for this version of the breakfast that you like to do, or if you." add mm. uh you know an ounce of macadamia nuts here's what that'll get like you're getting really specific with mm. with food ideas and like getting an idea of like what a typical breakfast lunch dinner might look like for the person and you're getting so much more granular versus i kind of i identify the nutrient and then i'm like all right it's up to you figure it out right, uh, right. to some degree or another um yeah. i have a nutritionist who works for me that helps with the implementation a little bit but you know I feel like I'm more on this than most of my functional colleagues. Oh, but for even sure. I feel like I'm not holding a candle to what you're doing in some ways. So it's it's interesting to get this perspective as I get to know you more and we talk clinically more too. Yeah. Well, and I, I will say too, um, just like to wrap things up as well with an ending thought. I think that a lot of people in the gut health space are so scared of different things or scared of to eat in a bad way. Like to me, I'd much rather someone be eating some sugar, like be eating some things that might be considered slightly unhealthy, but have a diverse uh, array of diet, uh, a diverse array of foods otherwise than someone eating pristine and it's stressing them out and pristine, basically like a pristine SIBO diet with removing a bunch of foods. Like to me, I think in the gut health space, the person eating sugar and maybe some, some gluten and some, some dairy, but has a wide variety of foods would be like inflamed. Like, Oh, that person's probably inflaming their gut by the sugar. They're eating FODMAPs and gluten. And then you go to the person that's eating clean and no FODMAPs and, uh, you know, might be slightly under eating because they're stressed and they don't know what to eat. If you looked at both of their nutritions, I would put money that probably the person that's less restrictive has way better nutrition. And because they have the tools to deal with inflammation better, um, again, everyone's a little different. So if someone has a gluten sensitivity, I'm not saying eat gluten, but I would consider the person with having sugar, some, some things that are just delicious and they want to keep in, but otherwise have it has a diverse diet would probably be in a much better place than the person that's super clean. Um, you know, might be under eating slightly, not eating FODMAPs. If you looked at their nutrition side to side without knowing anything, you would say more than likely that the person eating a wide variety would be doing a lot better from nutritionally speaking. And yeah, that goes a long way with managing, like I said, digestive capacity, immune function, motility, all those things that are super critical for IBS. But I think that the the inflammation piece in the functional space in terms of nutrition scares the bejesus out of people in particular, yeah. like that 
foods cause inflammation. Um, or you're feeding the SIBO and then that's causing irreversible damage. And <laughs> Right, right. Again, and we talked about this in the last episode, right? One of my biggest beefs with this profession is that they are very aware that fear sells. Yeah. And they are perfectly happy to use fear to scare the bejesus out of you into purchasing big packages of appointments and expensive laboratory testing and god-awful expensive supplements. And right. I see it pretty much across the board that functional providers are using fear to get you to take action yeah. and be compliant. Yeah, 100%. And again, it, it's just sort of funny because, again, if you looked at the person who's doing the quote-unquote clean more functional style restrictive diet. The functional medicine approved diet. Right. The functional medicine approved diet, if you actually looked at the nutrition there, they could be deficient in a lot of things that are important for regulating the immune response and inflammation. And it's like, well, that's not good. You know, but it's okay because their functional doctor is going to sell them a six per day multivitamin <laughs> right. from pure encapsulations. And that's going to cover all of their nutritional needs. So it's okay, right? Food is medicine. Yeah. Hurrah. I know, right? Like, right. No, but, you know, yeah, I, I would rather, and we're not even getting into another topic, by the way, which is entirely too much for this episode now, but the relationship with food and like eating patterns and are you eating around the same time every day? You know, are you eating too quickly? Are you chewing mm. your food? The mindful eating versus mindless eating. Um, you know, like if somebody's happily munching on a muffin and it's one of those muffins that has like the crumbly sugary bits oh, on yeah. top and it's just super unhealthy, they might digest that muffin better because they're happy to eat it. Right. And and they're just like in their element, they're chatting with a friend at Starbucks versus the person who's suffering over the 10th bowl of the same soup that they made because it's the only thing they can eat and they have to eat at home and they hate it and it's all organic. But like, this is what I have to do to heal myself. Like the energy and mm. the eating pattern and like the method that food gets into your body is totally different in these scenarios too. So like, is it worth it doing a super restrictive obsessive diet that is functional medicine approved and clean and devoid of mm. anything inflammatory? Or is it better to like live your life at least a bit and have yeah. some balance and take that person who's eating the muffin with the sugary bits on top and encourage them to maybe have some avocado with lunch or maybe have them eat some chicken with their whatever and focus on the additions and the nutritional repletion versus trying to scare them into thinking that the sugar and the gluten in that muffin is evil. Right. Right. It's like, yeah. I know. Um, 100%. But it's wild. at the risk of us going on a very long tangent, because again, mindful eating and all of yeah. that, like the method of eating that could easily be another episode. It will be at some point, I'm sure. Uh, but I feel the need to be a little bit of the producer here and cut us off at, at this yeah. point. Um, and one other thing, we will be doing some like breakout nutrient episodes, right? Soon. So we like, will, yeah, we, we'll we've been get, talking about it for a while. Well, we're going to be getting way more like nitty gritty around certain nutrients. So stay tuned for that. Cause I think those could be really fun, good episodes. It's going to be us having fun basically. And an yeah, excuse to take out. deep dives on these nutrients. But 
basically in season one, we did episodes where we had like two episodes about B vitamins and vitamin C was lumped in there too, like the water soluble vitamins. Mm -hmm. We had another episode about minerals and we had another episode about fat soluble vitamins. And what we're thinking now for season two is that we're actually going to have a whole episode about thiamine, a whole episode about riboflavin. And like, we'll really take more of a deep dive on, okay, like, what what is this nutrient really important for where's the research you know the microbiome the gut brain axis motility digestion whatever it might be um but obviously that's going to take a lot of research on our time so we've been talking about this nutrient series for a while but we haven't quite bit it off yet but yes soon we actually we have some other fun topics cooked up in mind too um i've been feeling called to do a deep dive on parasites finally And that's just, that's going to be a doozy. And unfortunately, I feel like I cannot go to the functional medicine forums to research this because I don't trust a damn word what they say, (laughs) especially when it comes to parasites. Because there's, you know, everybody has them and they're all toxic. That's well, what's the thing? Uh, One functional MD has said, if you have a pulse, you have a parasite. Oh, gosh. Get out of here. Get Get out of here. Nobody wants that. Stop. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, so we have some deep dives coming up in 2024. It's just a matter yeah. of when we allocate the time to research them. But in the meantime, keep it real, people. And we will be right back here with another smashing episode for you before you know it. See you next week. <laughs>